Section 2 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 1, Historical Position of the Cambridge School, Philosophy and Christianity, Part 2. There can be no doubt that at the time of the Restoration, the Cambridge divines were identified in public estimation with the progress of a new philosophy in opposition to that of Aristotle and the traditionary methods of inquiry. In a curious pamphlet of 1662, which professes to give a brief account of them under the name of the New Sect of Latitude Men, the point chiefly emphasized is their supposed connection with this new or mechanical philosophy. Footnote. The pamphlet purports to be written by S.P. of Cambridge. S.P. has been supposed to be Simon Patrick, afterwards Bishop of Ely, a friend of Tillotson, and, along with him, a pupil of the Cambridge Divines but the evidence connecting him with its authorship is not conclusive. See Preface to a New Edition of Patrick's Works, University Press, Oxford, 1858, by the Rev. Alexander Taylor, M.A., Michelle Fellow of Queen's College, Oxford, a preface admirable both in point of thought and composition. The full title of the pamphlet is A Brief Account of the New Sect of Latitude Men, Together with Some Reflections Upon the New Philosophy. In its original form it is extremely rare, but it may be found in a collection of tracts well known under the name of the Phoenix to all students of the 17th century. End of footnote. The pamphlet is throughout a spirited composition, not without lively touches of description, which may afterwards engage us. But its chief interest for our present purpose is the attempt which it makes to depict, under a sort of allegory, the philosophical position of the latitudinarian school. Religion, or the church, is represented under the figure of an ancient clock, the property of a certain husbandman in an old mansion-house, which had been a long while out of kelter, order, and needed to be repaired. A succession of persons, supposed to denote the diverse sects of philosophy, essay to mend it. A certain peripatetic artificer, something above the degree of a tinker, a clockmaker from the next town, who thought himself well-read in clock philosophy, the farmer's son, newly come from the university, inept at understanding things, but apt, parrot-like, to catch at words. All, however, failed to do the clock any good, till the landlord of the farmer, an ingenious gentleman who had used to take in pieces his own watch and set it together again, takes the matter in hand, impatient of all the jargon he has heard, and explains to the owner the simple mechanical construction of the instrument and what was needed to put it right. There is a want of clearness and consistency in the representation. It is by no means evident what special systems beyond the scholastic the writer intends to ridicule, but there can be no doubt of his intention to exalt the new or mechanical philosophy, and that the philosophy he has chiefly in view under this name is that of Descartes, who hath proceeded farthest in attempts to explain that vast machine, the universe. To them that have once tasted of the mechanical philosophy, forms and qualities are likely to give as little satisfaction as the clockmaker did to the intelligent gentleman in the story. So far from being inimical to a sound divinity, the philosophy will prove its best support. It will be faithful to Christianity no less against the open violence of atheism than the secret treachery of enthusiasm and superstition. Nor will it be possible, the author concludes, quote, otherwise to free religion from scorn and contempt if her priests be not as well skilled in nature as the people and her champions furnished with as good artillery as her enemies. Close quote. All this plainly implies that the latitude men were at least no enemies to naturalistic studies. It implies more than this. 
it is evident that the school of Cambridge theologians were in active sympathy with all that was really progressive and liberal in the scientific spirit of the time, that they had given a cordial welcome to the aspirations of the experimental philosophy and the new study of nature which had begun to inspire many and impart a new life and reality to their thoughts. They were so far in hearty affinity with this and all other forward tendencies of the time, although their own speculative impulse came from a different quarter and followed a different method. When we turn to their own writings, there is no difficulty in determining the main source of their speculative inspiration. As a philosophical school, they were formed by the study of the Platonic writings, the writings, that is to say, not only of Plato himself, but of those Alexandrian teachers who followed out in a theological direction the Platonic course of thought. This was the positive influence which, more than any other, molded the minds of all the men we have mentioned, and gave consistency and character, as it has given a name, to their speculative position. They brought the church back to her old loving nurse, the Platonic philosophy, and sought to raise the level of her thought again to that region of higher ideas in which she had once delighted to dwell. Within the bosom of Protestantism, they kindled for the first time the love of this nobler speculation, and endeavored to carry up its dogmatic problems into an atmosphere of rational thinking which should explain and verify them. Platonists by nature, they were drawn to the study of Plato and his scholars above others. To the great classics of idealism, they abandoned themselves with an enthusiasm which tinctures all their writings, and the constant outbreak of which, while it colors and emphasizes their style, also sometimes oppresses the freedom and mars the strength of their own thoughts. This Platonic revival was highly important for the interests of philosophy in England in the 17th century. It not only deepened in many minds the superficial tendencies of the Baconian system, and served to link together for them the spheres of spiritual law and material fact, but it evoked the only force adequate to meet the development of naturalism in a direction which threatened the distinctive principles of religion and the church. Bacon had made natural science the basis of all other science. All real knowledge or philosophy, according to him, came from the investigation and classification of outward facts. Hobbes took up the method and applied it to the study not of nature, but of society and the whole moral and spiritual order in which man finds himself here. He sought the basis of this order in certain obvious facts of human nature, and built up an elaborate hypothesis of social and political morality on the analysis and coordination of these facts. The hypothesis was one directly in the face of the Cambridge movement of thought, and it served to call forth all the energies of the movement and give decision to them. While Platonism, then, may be said to have originated the movement, Hobbism was the means of concentrating its thought and giving dogmatic direction to it. While the one was the positive, the other was the negative influence which formed the school. It had been the aim of the higher thought of the century to depreciate the principle of mere arbitrary rule, both in politics and religion, to carry men's minds away from traditional canons and dogmas to the true sphere of authority in reason and conscience. The movement had been in search of some rational principle of certitude amidst the decay of ancient systems and of mere institutional and personal safeguards. It remained for the great genius of Hobbes to try and arrest this progress, and reinstate on a philosophic basis the principle of arbitrary authority. To this task he brought rare powers and the most independent spirit of speculation. For Hobbes was a genuine child of his age in everything save the conclusions of his philosophy. He was a radical in the service of reaction. His mind was revolutionary in its vigor and directness, its hardihood and self-assertion, its freedom from pedantry, and contempt for the wisdom of the ancients. 
there is no one of all the thinkers of the century who has dealt to the old scholasticism such hearty and fatal blows. His clear and subtle, if sometimes coarse, analysis may be said to have laid the foundation of psychological science which has been so fruitful since his day. And to his organizing conception political philosophy owes its creation, whatever we may think of the character of the creation in his hands. But behind all his great gifts there was no spiritual insight, no eye for any truths deeper than those of the sense or the intellect. Not only had he no appreciation of such truths, but apparently he had no perception of their existence. He was honestly ignorant of them. In the compass of his own keen and powerful mind, he found no trace of them. Accordingly, he judged human nature and human society as if they were not. All that he saw, he saw with a rare clearness. But there was a side of human life which he did not see at all, to which he turned an eye wholly blind. So it was that the civil and religious distractions of his age presented to him nothing but their obvious aspect of quarrelsomeness and misery. He detected nothing of the deeper spiritual and political influences which were moving the age, and amidst all its confusion moving it towards a higher organization both of religious and civil well-being, nothing of the underlying moral forces which were painfully growing into a better order, a higher form of commonwealth. There were to him no such moral forces. Nothing, he says, is in itself either bad or good, ugly or beautiful. Everything gets its quality from without and is stamped by external authority. As words are merely the counters of wise men, so actions are in themselves entirely indifferent. They get all their value or meaning from a sanction outside of them. Moral duties have their elementary basis in human nature, but they derive all their social or organic effect from the supreme political power. In this sense, if not primarily and absolutely, morality is the creature of the state. So also is religion, which has a natural foundation in human fear, but the truths of which can only be defined and guaranteed by the supreme authority residing in the sovereign who only has the legislative power. It was impossible, in fact, for Hobbes, starting as he did from a mere external view of human nature, as a collection of selfish instincts at necessary war with one another, to find any regulative principle within, any law of the mind which could subdue the lower conflict of the passions. There was to him no sphere of human nature corresponding to the law of the mind, and the principle of control, therefore, must come from without and not from within. Similarly, he could find no rallying point for human society, save in external law, backed by a supreme power capable of enforcing it. This was to him at once the highest ethical and the highest political conception. And within the control of this sovereign power, whose verdicts admitted of no challenge and no division, he sought to reduce all the movements of life, of society, and the church. Never were nobler powers consecrated to lower service. Never was a bolder attempt made to contradict the very idea of moral progress and of rational liberty in religion, and to enthrone in their stead a gigantic naturalism which might conserve society, but only at the expense of the nobler aspirations, for the excitement and development of which society is to be valued. The essentially unchristian character of Hobbes's speculations shine through all the disguise of scriptural language and the framework of biblical conceptions which he delights to employ. He is not the more, but the less, a Christian for all his parade of Christian phraseology. His professions of respect for supernaturalism and his descriptive analysis of a Christian commonwealth may be honest or not. This does not alter the essential character of his thought, which leaves no rational basis in human nature for either morality or religion. A system such as this was in every respect antagonistic to the Platonic school at Cambridge. 
they had no doubts from the first of its meaning. They saw in it a living and formidable opponent to their most cherished convictions. They disliked both its political and speculative spirit, and armed themselves to encounter it. Even before the publication of the Leviathan in 1651, when the first sketch of the hobby in philosophy had only been privately printed at Paris and circulated, Cudworth would seem to have discerned its purport, and entered the lists against it in the theses which he delivered for his degree of B.D. at Cambridge in 1644. The great labors of his life were more or less directed by the same antagonism. Everywhere the principles of the Leviathan crop out in the line of his thought, and they influence no less conspicuously the argumentation of his colleague, Henry Moore. Both writers are only to be understood in the light of Hobbes's theories. The platonic background of their speculations only comes into full prominence against the atomistic materialism which they believed it to be the essential aim of his writings to propagate. It was the special merit of the school that they were able to meet this materialistic tendency, not merely, as some others, by polemical criticism and clever exposure, but by a well-ordered scheme of thought, whose principles had been already worked into unison with Christian philosophy. Footnote. Such as Clarendon and others. Clarendon wrote in his exile a survey of the Leviathan and dedicated it to Charles II. End of footnote. This was the glory of the school. It was also its weakness. It gave a systematic and elaborate plan to their arguments, but it tempted them, also, not infrequently, to substitute mere learning for reasoning, and to call in ancient verdicts instead of working out difficulties by their own enkindled and living thoughtfulness. As mere writers, the Cambridge men were less original and advanced than Hobbes. They served the cause of progress, but with weapons of less novelty and precision than those with which he opposed it. Their meaning was infinitely higher, their form by no means so perfect. While they led the cause of rational liberty and independent speculation in the highest subjects, they remained fettered by a literary traditionalism and bondage to the mere verbalism of ancient opinion, which greatly impaired the value of their labors, and have given them a far less living influence than they deserved in the history of opinion. There are but few contemporary notices of the Cambridge Latitudinarians, and such as they are, they do not greatly help us to a full or enlightened conception of their position and objects. Burnett alludes to them in a well-known passage, characterizing them, after his manner, in a few graphic touches, but he does not give any detailed description of their relation to the parties of the time. The passage, though well-known, is too significant to be omitted. Speaking generally of the clergy of the Restoration, he says that, quote, "...they generally took more care of themselves than of the church." The men of merit and service were loaded with many livings and many dignities. With this great accession of wealth, there broke in upon the church a great deal of luxury and high living on the pretense of hospitality, while others made purchases and left great estates, most of which we have seen melt away. And with this overset of wealth and pomp that came on men in the decline of their parts and age, they, who were now growing into old age, became lazy and negligent in all the true concerns of the church. They left preaching and writing to others, while they gave themselves up to ease and sloth. In all which sad representation, some few exceptions are to be made, but so few that if a new set of men had not appeared of another stamp, the church had quite lost her esteem over the nation. These were generally of Cambridge, formed under some divines, the chief of whom were Drs. Whichcote, Cudworth, Wilkins, Moore, and Worthington. Whichcote was a man of a rare temper, very mild and obliging. He had great credit with some that had been eminent in the late times, but made all the use he could of it to protect good men of all persuasions. 
he was much for liberty of conscience, and being disgusted with the dry systematical way of those times, he studied to raise those who conversed with him to a nobler set of thoughts, and to consider religion as a seed of a deiform nature, to use one of his own phrases. In order to this, he set young students much on reading the ancient philosophers, chiefly Plato, Tully, and Plotin, and on considering the Christian religion as a doctrine sent from God, both to elevate and sweeten human nature, in which he was a great example, as well as a wise and kind instructor. Cudworth carried this on with a great strength of genius and a vast compass of learning. He was a man of great conduct and prudence, upon which his enemies did very falsely accuse him of craft and dissimulation. Wilkins was of Oxford, but removed to Cambridge. His first rise was in the Elector Palatine's family, when he was in England. Afterwards he married Cromwell's sister, but made no other use of that alliance but to do good offices, and to cover the university from the sourness of Owen and Goodwin. At Cambridge he joined with those who studied to propagate better thoughts, to take men off from being in parties, or from narrow notions, from superstitious conceits, and a fierceness about opinions. He was also a great observer and promoter of experimental philosophy, which was then a new thing and much looked after. He was naturally ambitious, but was the wisest clergyman I ever knew. He was a lover of mankind, and had a delight in doing good. Moore was an open-hearted and sincere Christian philosopher, who studied to establish men in the great principles of religion against atheism, that was then beginning to gain ground, chiefly by reason of the hypocrisy of some, and the fantastical conceits of the more sincere enthusiasts. Interposing a brief description of the philosophy of Hobbes, he proceeds, quote, He, Hobbes, thought interest and fear were the chief principles of society, and he put all morality in the following that which was our private will or advantage. He thought religion had no other foundation than the laws of the land, and he put all the law in the will of the prince or of the people. For he writ his book at first in favor of absolute monarchy, but turned it afterwards to gratify the Republican Party. These were his true principles, though he had disguised them for deceiving unwary readers. And this set of motions came to spread much. The novelty and boldness of them set many on reading them. The impiety of them was acceptable to men of corrupt minds, which were but too prepared to receive them by the extravagances of the late times. So this set of men at Cambridge studied to assert and examine the principles of religion and morality on clear grounds and in a philosophical method. In this way, Moore led the way to many that came after him. Worthington was a man of eminent piety and great humility, and practiced a most sublime way of self-denial and devotion. All these, and those who were formed under them, studied to examine further into the nature of things than had been done formerly. They declared against superstition on the one hand, and enthusiasm on the other. They loved the constitution of the church, and the liturgy, and could well live under them, but they did not think it unlawful to live under another form. They wished that things might have been carried with more moderation, and they continued to keep a good correspondence with those who had differed from them in opinion, and allowed a great freedom both in philosophy and in divinity, from whence they were called men of latitude. And upon this, men of narrower thoughts and fiercer tempers fastened upon them the name of latitudinarians. They read Episcopius much, and the making out the reasons of things being a main part of their studies, their enemies called them Socinians. They were all very zealous against popery, and so, they becoming soon very considerable, the papists set themselves against them to decry them as atheists, deists, or at best Socinians. Footnote. Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 1, pages 339 to 342. End of footnote.
In addition to Burnett, there are two contemporary writers who give us a general description of the Cambridge Platonists, or Latitudinarians. S.P. of Cambridge, to whose pamphlet we have already alluded, and Edward Fowler, who was subsequently Bishop of Gloucester. Fowler's publication is entitled, Principles and Practices of Certain Moderate Divines of the Church of England, Abusively Called Latitudinarians, etc., in a free discourse between two intimate friends. The free discourse was published anonymously, probably in 1670. The second edition bears the date of 1671, but it is well understood to have been the production of Fowler, who is somewhat better known as the author of a treatise on The Design of Christianity, by which he sought to follow up the reasoning of the discourse, and the spirit and principles of which were vigorously attacked by Bunyan. Fowler is a clever and ingenious writer, not without some degree of thoughtfulness, but his sketch of the opinions he so much admires is very desultory, with a constant tendency to run into tedious and aimless discussion. We can gather, however, from his description, general as it is, and from the pamphlet of S.P., certain features which it may be worth selecting and setting before the reader. Footnote. There is also a pamphlet by Samuel Parker, A.M., afterwards Bishop of Oxford, entitled A Free and Impartial Censure of the Platonic Philosophy, 1665. Parker we have already encountered as Hales's critic, and it is probable that he may have intended in his general criticism of the Platonic philosophy an indirect censure of the Cambridge School, with whose tendencies he had plainly no affinity. His pamphlet, however, contains no direct allusions to the school, and its somewhat abstract polemics barely touch it. If somewhat free and coarse in its handling, Parker's pamphlet is yet written with clearness, point, and vigor, and is, in brief, a very fair defense of Baconian or inductive philosophy against Platonic or other idealism. End of footnote. Both writers witness strongly to the recognized position of the Cambridge divines as a distinct school of religious thought in the decade following the Restoration. In this respect, they were objects of popular criticism, everywhere spoken about with the ignorant and vague apprehension with which new movements are apt to be regarded by the vulgar. I can come into no company of late, says the Oxford correspondent of S.P., but I find the chief discourse to be about a certain new sect of men called latitude men. But though the name be in every man's mouth, yet the explicit meaning of it, or the heresy which they hold, or the individual persons that are of it, are as unknown, for aught I can learn, as the order of the Rosicrucians. On the one side I hear them represented as a party very dangerous to the king and church, as seeking to undermine them both. On the other side, I cannot hear what their particular opinions or practices are that bear any such dangerous aspect. Close quote. The name of latitude men, S.P. admits in reply, quote, is daily exaggitated amongst us both in taverns and pulpits, and very tragical representations made of them. A latitude man, therefore, according to the best definition I can collect, is an image of clouts that men set up to encounter with for want of a real enemy. It is a convenient name to reproach a man that you owe a spite to. Tis what you will, and you may affix it upon whom you will. To something will serve to talk of when all other discourse fails. In the discourse, our divines appear much in the same light. I have often observed, says one of the two intimate friends who carry on the dialogue, quote, that the fierce men, as much at odds as they are among themselves, can too well agree in heaping calumnies on these gentlemen and in giving them the worst of characters. I have heard them represented as a generation of people that have revived the abominable principles of the old Gnostics 
as a company of men that are prepared for the embracing of any religion and to renounce or subscribe to any doctrine rather than incur the hazard of persecution and that they esteem him the only heretic that refuseth to be of that religion the king or state professeth or at least the most dangerous heretic that suffering is to be preferred before sinning they are characterized as people whose only religion it is to temporize and transform themselves into any shape for their secular interests and that judge no doctrine so saving as that which obligeth to so complying and condescending a humor as to become all things to all men that so by any means they may gain something as i heard one once jeer a most worthy person as he thought no doubt very wittily again says one of the friends quote, have you not heard the choleric gentlemen distinguish these persons by a long nickname which they have taught their tongues to pronounce as roundly as if it were shorter than it is by four or five syllables yes is the reply oftener i presume than you have for though we are both countrymen and wanted more than most to a solitary life yet my occasions call me abroad and into varieties of companies more frequently than yours do you where i hear ever and anon the word of a foot and a half long sounded out with a great grace and that not only at fires and tables but sometimes from pulpits too nay and it accompanied good store of other bombasts and little witticisms in seasoning not long since the stately oxonian theatre the general position of the cambridge platonists is sufficiently evident from these remarks they enjoyed the vague repute of thinkers in a frivolous and ignorant age they were misunderstood alike by the fanatics of the church and of nonconformity to both they were objects of dislike and yet in some degree of fear to the rising generation half fanatical and half epicurean the generation which gave ten pounds for the paradise lost and left its author to die in obscurity and poverty they seem mainly to have been objects of ridicule the character of the age may be judged from the character of its jokes it seemed to it a piece of humour to speak of a latitudinarian as a gentleman of a wide swallow we do not learn anything very definite from the discourse any more than from the tractate of s p as to the philosophical principles of the cambridge divines beyond the fact that they set themselves with zeal to oppose the hobbyan philosophy which is described by the author of the discourse as consisting in such doctrines as the following viz quote, that all moral righteousness is founded in the law of the civil magistrate that the holy scriptures are obliging by virtue only of a civil sanction that whatsoever magistrates command their subjects are bound to submit to notwithstanding contrary to divine moral laws Close quote. Had they taught such doctrines, the author of the discourse argues, they might have deserved the censures which so many lavished upon them. But, on the contrary, he says, such, quote, accursed principles, for I can give them no better epithet, were never more solidly confuted than by these men, close quote. Both writers speak with more distinctness and detail of the ecclesiastical and theological position of our divines. S.P. particularly vindicates their honest and devout attachment to the Church of England, and their high approval of its virtuous mediocrity, as distinguished alike from the meretricious gaudiness of the Church of Rome and the squalid sluttery of fanatic conventicles. They were earnestly in favor of a liturgy, and preferred that of the Church of England to all others, admiring the solemnity, gravity, and primitive simplicity of it, its freedom from affected phrases or mixture of vain and doubtful opinions in a word they thought it so good that they were loath to adventure the mending of it for fear of marring it in like manner they are said to have had a deep veneration for the government of the anglican church which they esteemed to be at once the best in itself and the most conformable to the apostolic times 
they did always abhor continues s p quote, both the usurpation of scottish presbytery and the confusion of independent anarchy and do esteem it one of the methods which the prince of darkness useth to overthrow the church and religion by bringing the clergy into contempt which experience tells us will necessarily follow upon the removing of the several dignities and preeminence among them for when the bishops are once levelled with ordinary presbyters the presbyters will soon be trampled on by the meanest of the laity and when every preacher would needs be a bishop every rustic and mechanic took upon him to be a preacher fowler does not emphasize so much their attachment to the anglican form of church government but he says that they greatly preferred episcopacy esteeming it to be in its essentials the best type of church government as well as that which is found prevailing presently after the apostles times he identifies their views with the rational and moderate opinions of chillingworth in his well-known statement on the subject as to their theological views both writers dwell upon the hearty subscription which the cambridge divines gave to the thirty-nine articles nor is there any article of doctrine continues s p quote, held by the church which they can justly be accused to depart from unless absolute reprobation be one which they do not think themselves bound to believe Close quote. heartily however as they are said to subscribe to the thirty-nine articles of the church it is expressly stated by the author of the discourse that in doing so they took that liberty in the interpretation of them that is allowed by the church herself subscription was held merely to imply the acceptance of the articles as instruments of peace and in favor of this view fowler quotes the authority of archbishop usher the most significant passage cited by him is the following from usher's schism guarded quote, we do not suffer any man to reject the thirty-nine articles of the church of england at his pleasure yet neither do we look upon them as essentials of saving faith or legacies of christ and his apostles but in a mean as pious opinions fitted for the preservation of unity neither do we oblige any man to believe them but only not to contradict them this was plainly the principle on which the cambridge divines adhered to the doctrines of the church of england a principle which they believed to be embodied in its constitution and of the highest value in itself they were characteristically rational theologians they sought to bring every truth or doctrine to the test of the christian reason and to estimate it by a moral standard in other words by its tendency to exalt or degrade our conceptions of the divine it was absurd argues s p to accuse them of hearkening too much to their own reason for reason he adds quote, is that faculty whereby a man must judge of everything nor can a man believe anything except he have some reason for it whether that reason be a deduction from the light of nature and those principles which are the candle of the lord set up in the soul of every man that hath not wilfully extinguished it or a branch of divine revelation in the oracles of holy scripture or the general interpretation of genuine antiquity or the proposal of our own church consentaneous thereto or lastly the result of some or all of these for he that will rightly make use of his reason must take all that is reasonable into consideration and it is admirable to consider how the same conclusions do naturally flow from all these several principles nor is there any point in divinity where that which is most ancient doth not prove the most rational and the most rational the ancientest for there is an eternal consanguinity between all verity and nothing is true in divinity which is false in philosophy or on the contrary and therefore what god hath joined together let no man put asunder the author of the discourse ventures more definitely to define their theological position as a middle one betwixt the calvinists and remonstrants on the one hand he says they maintained quote, 
that there is such a thing as distinguishing grace whereby some persons are absolutely elected by virtue whereof they shall be having potent and infallible means prepared for them irresistibly saved but on the other hand they hold quote, that others not of the number of this special elect are not at all in a desperate condition but have sufficient means appointed for them to qualify them for greater or less of happiness and have sufficient grace offered to them some way or other and some time or other and are in a capacity of salvation either greater or less through the mercies of jesus christ and that none of them are damned but those that willfully refuse to cooperate with that grace of god and will not act in some moral suitableness to that power they have received this medium theology appeared to fowler to present all the advantages of calvinism without any of the disadvantages of arminianism it embraced at once an absolute decree and a universal salvability. Quote, Whatsoever good Arminianism pretends to concerning all men is exhibited to the part not absolutely elected, and to the other part the goodness of God is greater than is allotted by Arminius. And whatsoever good is pretended in Calvinism to that part that is absolutely elected, the same goodness is here exhibited, and besides that direful vizard pulled off, that ignorance and melancholy had put upon divine providence and the lovely face of the gospel. He is at a loss to conceive why either Calvinist or Remonstrant should mislike so comprehensive and beautiful a system. He can only account for this by an obstinate idea on their part that there cannot be any improvements in theology. But to such an idea he himself strongly objects. Every age, sure enough, he says, quote, improveth in knowledge, having the help still of those foregoing, and as this is seen in other sciences, so especially is it discernible in that of divinity, as all but ignorant and extremely prejudiced persons must needs acknowledge. Such are the main features of interest to be gathered from the contemporary notices of the Cambridge divines which have come down to us. They are neither very copious nor very intelligent. They do not penetrate much below the surface, nor help us to get close to the heart or higher meaning of the movement. But, so far, they are lively, interesting, and characteristic and if they do not go deep, they suggest a clear enough surface picture. It is seldom, perhaps, that the highest side of any religious movement is presented to contemporary onlookers and critics, but even the hasty impressions of contemporaries are always well worthy the attention of the historian. They serve to give life and reality to the aspects of a movement, even where they fail to recognize all its meaning or to describe it in its fullness. End of chapter 1, part 2